You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 115 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. When we left off last time, it was the morning of Sunday, April 6th, 1862, and the big Confederate attack had finally started to roll forward against the Federal Divisional camps that had been put up in the vicinity of Pittsburgh Landing, down in the far southwestern corner of Tennessee. On most Sunday mornings, the locals would have made their way to an axe-hewn chink-and-mortar Methodist church named Shiloh Chapel, but on this particular Sabbath, most of the area's residents had fled, and the nondescript Little House of God was about to give its name to one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War. In the last episode, we focused our attention on the initial Confederate attack on the Union left, As you guys will recall, the rebel assault there routed the Federal Division commanded by Benjamin Prentiss. And if you picked up our book recommendation for episode 113, The West Point Atlas of War, The Civil War, you can turn to the first Shiloh map in it, and you can see where Prentiss's 6th Division camps were located. Prentiss's division was defeated and driven off in disorder, But we said last time that Albert Sidney Johnston made a critical mistake in apparently thinking that in routing that division of Yankees, he'd rolled up the Union left. Based on that assumption, he concluded that he was between the Tennessee River and the remainder of Grant's army, which was still offering stout resistance just over to the west. He thought that having cut off the bulk of Grant's army from the river, he could begin the final phase of the battle that is, crashing down on those Union defenders, driving them north, and trapping them between those two creeks and their swampy bottomlands. But, and this is the key, but the first step in Sidney Johnston's thinking was an error. Because he hadn't actually rolled up the Union left, he'd merely shoved it backward, toward Pittsburgh Landing. That meant that the battered Federals, still offering stout resistance just over to the west, Instead of being forced away from the river, as Johnston planned, they could still fall back toward the landing, and in that way slip out of the trap that Sidney Johnston had wanted to snare them in. Okay, everybody got that? All right, so... All right, so with Prentice's division defeated and driven off in disorder, many of the Confederate soldiers in this sector in turn became disorganized as they ransacked the abandoned Federal regimental encampments here. One famous story that is often told is of how Sidney Johnston rode through the captured camps of Miller's Brigade 
and was dismayed at encountering this disorganization among the rebel troops. Just at that moment, a young lieutenant exited a Yankee tent and proudly displayed his impressive haul of souvenirs to Johnston. The outraged general sternly exclaimed, None of that, sir. We are not here for plunder. But so immediately and obviously crushed was the young man by this rebuke that the general immediately regretted the harshness of his words. Picking out a tin cup from the lieutenant's loot, he raised it and said, Let this be my share of the spoils today. Sidney Johnston then rode off, carrying the cup with him. A few minutes later, a messenger found Johnston with alarming news from the far right flank of the rebel army. The courier had just ridden from Captain Samuel Lockett, who was leading a patrol of Confederate cavalry over near the river. Lockett's message said that he had encountered a division of Federals marching south on the road paralleling the Tennessee. Sidney Johnston appreciated that this was a serious development, for such a move by a division of Yankees would put them on a course to strike, or worse, turn, the Confederate right flank. The division, Johnston would have surmised, must have been encamped far in the Federal rear, in the immediate vicinity of Pittsburgh Landing, and it was no doubt Grant's reserve, coming forward to try to reverse the disastrous defeat of the Union left. Sidney Johnston no doubt believed that if he could counter this unexpected enemy move, then the rest of Grant's army could still be pushed into the trap that he had planned for them. But despite Lockett's excited report, the Federals over on the extreme Union left weren't a division marching south, but were in fact a detached and isolated brigade that were going about their usual Sunday morning routine in the spot where they had been encamped for more than a week. And, again, if you pull out your West Point atlas, there on that first Shiloh map, you can see where Stewart's brigade was camped. And by the way, and this will only make sense if you have the atlas in hand, but be aware that to have these Shiloh maps oriented north-south, you need to turn the book to the right. So turn it like that, and there you go. The river is on the right where it should be, and everything is hunky-dory. Okay, so anyway, that brigade, commanded by Colonel David Stewart, was part of Sherman's division, but the rest of Sherman's division was far off over to the west. Stewart's brigade of one Illinois and two Ohio regiments had been detached from its parent formation and sent over to the extreme Union left near the river to keep an eye on things there. And so when Lockett peered across from the other side of Lick Creek and saw these Yankees, they were simply finishing breakfast, preparing for inspection, and wondering about the meaning of the firing they could hear coming from the direction of Prentice's camps. But not realizing that Lockett's report was an error, Sidney Johnston acted quickly to counter the perceived federal threat. As we mentioned in the last show, Johnston had already started to shift forces to the Confederate left for what he believed would be the final phase of the battle, and so now he had only three brigades still on this part of the battlefield. But to counter the threat Lockett had discovered, Johnston now ordered two of those brigades, led by James R. Chalmers and John K. Jackson, to march immediately over to the right. For the moment, the remaining brigade in this sector would have to be sufficient to cover the enormous gap between Chalmers and Jackson on the right and the rest of the Confederate army now over on the left, or on their way there, 
where Sidney Johnston believed all that was left to do was to crush the trapped remnant of Grant's army in the Owl and Snake Creek bottomlands. Sidney Johnston was prepared to accept the risk to his center with the enormous gap covered by a single brigade, since he believed there were now few, if any, organized Union troops left to face him there. At any rate, Johnston took steps to shore up his now weak center. He had previously sent word back to PGT Beauregard that he wanted the three brigades in Breckinridge's Reserve Corps to move to the Confederate left, but Johnston now sent new orders for two of those brigades to divert from the left back toward the right. It was well that Sidney Johnston took that step to shore up his now thinly manned center, since, unknown to him, he did not face a complete void of Union combat units in that sector, as he presumed. Instead, Prentiss, at that very moment, was busy reforming the shattered remnants of his division along a farm lane that ran roughly east-west, about 1,200 yards north of the captured camps where the Confederate commander was making his decisions. After their route by the relentlessly advancing Confederate troops, a large number of Prentice's men had kept running the full two and a half miles all the way back to Pittsburgh Landing. There they milled about aimlessly at the foot of the bluff the rest of the day, telling anyone who would listen that their regiments had been cut to pieces by the irresistible rebel hordes. Meanwhile, their comrades were rallying along that farm lane about three-quarters of a mile north of their captured camps. After badly fumbling the opening stage of the battle, Prentice's blood was now up, and he even wanted to take his two badly battered brigades and counterattack the Confederates and recapture the lost camps. But the attack was never made, since cooler heads prevailed, and convinced Prentice that the wisest move would be to have the division prepare to defend its new position as soon as the rebels would appear following up their victory at the camps. Prentice's men soon had help, the brand-new 23rd Missouri had arrived at the landing, landing that very morning and received orders to join Prentice's division. The Missourians were marching toward the division's camps when they started to encounter those of their new comrades, who were in headlong flight in the opposite direction, running back toward Pittsburgh Landing. Continuing forward, the 23rd Missouri found divisional headquarters now located at that farm lane about a mile and three-quarters from the landing. With about a thousand fresh men, the 23rd probably outnumbered the remainder of Prentice's force that had rallied at the lane after their fight in front of their camps. During the fighting in front of the division's camps, Prentice had sent messages back to the 2nd and 4th Divisions, commanded by W.H.L. Wallace and Stephen Hurlbut, notifying those officers that a battle was in progress and asking for help. And so between 9 and 9.30, those two divisions moved up and took position on either side of Prentice's remnant and the 23rd Missouri. Hurlbut brought the 4th Division into position on Prentice's left, extending the Union line past a peach orchard that was blooming in delicate pink and out into a cotton field owned by a widow named Sarah Bell. However, Hurlbut already had detached one of his three brigades and sent it to William Tecumseh Sherman, who was said to be hard-pressed at the other end of the battlefield, and Hurlbut's remaining two brigades couldn't stretch far enough east to link up with Stuart over by the river. 
Not able to join hands with Stewart, Hurlbut asked for help from W.H.L. Wallace, who was bringing the second division up into line on Prentice's right. Wallace had taken over the veteran second division from the ailing C.F. Smith. Y'all recall how after Halleck had sidelined Ulysses S. Grant, C.F. Smith had been given command of Grant's army for a while. Anyway, all that's to say that here at Shiloh, W.H.L. Wallace was now in command of Smith's old division. Now, as Wallace came up on Prentice's right, he ordered one of his brigades, led by Scottish-born John MacArthur, to go over and help Hurlbut. MacArthur's men, nicknamed the Highland Brigade, had seen hard fighting at Fort Donelson back in February and now found themselves with another, another difficult mission, since they still couldn't stretch the line far enough to link up with Stuart, and a gap of 200 yards remained. Fortunately, that gap was obstructed by woods and cut by a ravine. Together, the combined forces of Wallace, Prentice, and Hurlbut formed a line that extended nearly a mile, roughly from the Corinth Road to the Hamburg-Savannah Road. The line's alignment was northwest to to southeast, and it faced southwest. It was a bit after 9 a.m. when Hurlbut brought his two brigades into position near the southern edge of the Widow Bell's cotton field, which was now covered with last year's stubble. Hurlbut's men briefly clashed with the Confederate brigades of Adams and Chalmers and Jackson, which were advancing from the direction of Prentice's captured camps. But then Sidney Johnston, as we've already mentioned, diverted Chalmers and Jackson against Stuart. It was at that point, perhaps at 9.30 or 10, that only Adams' Confederate brigade was left to confront the Union Center, and a lull ensued in front of Hurlbut's, Prentice's, and W.H. Wallace's lines for most of the next hour. Back at the captured Union camps, Sidney Johnston watched as Chalmers' men moved out of sight toward the extreme Confederate right. The Confederate commander was confident that Chalmers and Jackson would counter the Phantom Union division there, which, as y'all recall, Sidney Johnston believed was Grant's reserve and represented the Yankee general's last bid to save his army. Therefore, Sidney Johnston thought that all that was left of the battle was the end game that is, methodically driving the bulk of the Federal Army farther and farther north into the cul-de-sac formed by Owl and Snake Creeks, and thus deeper into the trap from which he believed they couldn't escape. It was at this point that Albert Sidney Johnston, a keen chess player, turned to a staff officer and announced, That checkmates them. The staff officer, a bit startled by this pronouncement, said he was glad to hear Johnston say it, but he himself was a poor chess player, and if the general would forgive him, he could not quite see it yet. But Sidney Johnston confidently replied, Yes, sir, that mates them. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. At the opposite end of the Shiloh battlefield were the Union troops that Albert Sidney Johnston, by mid-morning, believed he had trapped and checkmated. Here, too, the fighting had started at daybreak, but it had continued to rage in full fury in this sector even after Prentice's rout had brought a lull to the east end of the battlefield, over where Sidney Johnston was confident of impending victory even as he listened to the sound of the guns here off to the northwest. And again, not to harp on it, but if you want to pull out your West Point atlas, you can see where the camps of William Tecumseh Sherman's division, the 5th Division, were located. There, during the pre-dawn hours, Colonel Jesse Appler, the commander of the 53rd Ohio, listened uneasily to the sound of an intense skirmish taking place somewhere out beyond the southern edge of the regiment's camp. As you guys will recall, Appler was the officer whose suspicions of nearby rebel activity had been contemptuously dismissed by Sherman the day before. Now, in the darkness just before sunrise, the fighting the nervous Appler could hear in the distance was the initial clash in Fraley Field between Powell's early morning patrol and Hardcastle's Confederates. It wasn't long before the special 16-man picket that Appler had posted at the south end of Ray Field the night before came hurrying back to camp with the news, which by then was no news at all, that they heard very heavy firing close by. Appler waffled, issuing a series of conflicting orders to his regimental adjutant, Lieutenant Ephraim C. Dawes, but then quickly countermanding each order before Dawes could carry it out. This went on for some moments before finally Appler ordered Dawes to have the drummer beat the long roll, the signal for the regiment to turn out at once and form on the color line, armed and ready for action. Appler knew that the sound of the alarm would be heard by the rest of the brigade, as well as by Division Commander Sherman, whose headquarters at Shiloh Church was not 500 yards from the 53rd's camp. To be sure of the communication, though, Appler sent a messenger to his brigade commander, Colonel Jesse Hildebrand, and another to carry the report directly to Sherman. But Sherman still wasn't buying into the idea that the rebels were contemplating a major attack, and a few minutes later, when the messenger returned, he told Appler, quote, General Sherman says, you must be badly scared over there, end quote. So Sherman had once again scornfully dismissed Appler's concerns. 
But Hildebrand, Appler's brigade commander, responded to his subordinate's message with an order that the picket line be strengthened with two more companies. No sooner had Appler moved to carry out this order, though, than a Confederate line of battle could be seen in the strengthening light crossing the southern end of Ray Field. The rebels were actually advancing across the field diagonally as they moved to engage the line of battle that Peabody had thrown up just in front of his brigade's camps, about a quarter mile northwest of where Appler saw them crossing the southern end of Ray Field. At the sight of the Confederates, the increasingly anxious Appler responded by putting the 53rd Ohio through a series of maneuvers that saw the regiment move to positions in front of, then to the left of, and finally to the rear of its camp. By the time Appler began his indecisive series of maneuvers, the rest of Sherman's division was also forming up in line of battle in front of their camps. Sherman might have scoffed at Appler's concerns, but his brigade and regimental commanders were taking the situation seriously. Shortly after the drums sounded in the camp of the 53rd Ohio, Sherman's other regimental commanders had their own drummers start to beat the long roll. An irritated Sherman, determined to see for himself what minor disturbance had caused his skittish subordinates to turn out the entire division and line of battle, mounted his horse and set out from his headquarters at Shiloh Church, his staff and orderlies trailing after him. Sherman eventually reined up in front of the left flank of Appler's regiment, and from there, looking south, he could see, perhaps 500 yards away, that troops were indeed marching diagonally across Ray Field, and their uniforms didn't appear to be Union blue. Intent on figuring out what was going on, Sherman raised his field glasses to his eyes and studied the soldiers. As he did so, a line of rebel skirmishers suddenly emerged from the woods and brush along the west side of Ray Field, immediately opposite the camp of the 53rd Ohio, and not more than 75 yards from where Sherman and his staff sat their horses, gazing south. Lieutenant Dawes, the 53rd's adjutant, saw the danger, and as the Confederates stepped into the open, he blurted to Lieutenant Eustace H. Ball of Company E, Ball, Sherman will be shot. Ball reacted quickly, running toward Sherman and shouting, General, look to your right. Sherman lowered his glasses and turned his head to see a score of rebel muskets aimed at him. As the Confederates fired, Sherman threw up his hand in a startled reaction. The rebels' loads were buck and ball, one 69-caliber musket ball and three buckshot in each cartridge. One of the buckshot struck Sherman's upraised right hand. At the same moment, one of the musket balls hit his orderly, Private Thomas D. Holliday, in the head. As Holliday toppled from his horse, dead, Sherman exclaimed, My God, we are attacked! Before spurring his horse and galloping back toward his headquarters, Sherman turned and shouted, Appler, hold your position. I will support you. By the time Sherman got back to his headquarters at Shiloh Church, the Confederate attack was emerging from the woods in front of the rest of Hildebrand's brigade, as well as in front of Sherman's 4th Brigade, led by Colonel Ralph P. Buckland. The situation was developing very quickly. Meanwhile, in the space of time before they opened fire on the advancing rebels, Sherman's men were encouraged by the fact that they could hear drums sounding the long roll back in the camps of Major General John A. McClernand's division, about half a mile or so to the rear.
In front of Appler's 53rd Ohio, the advancing rebel battle line made its way through the rows of tents in the regiment's abandoned camp and then emerged to find the Ohioans drawn up just 50 yards away. At Appler's order, the regiment loosed a deadly short-range volley. Lieutenant Dawes later recalled, with considerable understatement, that, quote, there was a tremendous crash of musketry. Peering through the gun smoke, Dawes also remembered spying a group of rebel officers clustered around a color bearer who carried, quote, a peculiar flag of dark blue with a white ball in the center. That was the flag supposed to be carried by all of the units of Hardee's first attack wave, and the group of Confederate officers near that particular standard may have included the Brigadier General, who would one day be known as one of the Rebel Army's best division commanders, Patrick Claiborne. But here at Shiloh, Claiborne was leading a single brigade and had his hands full just doing that. Claiborne had been born in Ireland and had served in the British Army, rising to the rank of corporal before obtaining his discharge and immigrating to America, where he settled in my home state of Arkansas. There he eventually became a lawyer, and when secession led to war, Claiborne enlisted with his local friends, who elected him captain of their militia company. From there he rose to colonel of the 15th Arkansas, and a little more than a month before Shiloh, he was elevated to brigadier general. At Shiloh, Claiborne had a brigade of six regiments, four from Tennessee and one each from Arkansas and Mississippi. In keeping with the tactics manual authored by Hardee six years before the Civil War, Claiborne's brigade was deployed in a single line of battle, two ranks deep, all six regiments side by side, in a formation that must have stretched roughly a mile from flank to flank. It was a difficult formation to maintain while the brigade moved over rough ground through dense woods and then the deep mud in the bottomland along Shiloh Creek. Claiborne galloped from one end of his line to the other, attempting to maintain regimental alignments and trying to keep the entire brigade moving forward in unison. Reaching an especially deep patch of mud, Claiborne's horse mired in the muck, then reared up and dumped Claiborne into the ooze. Now a muddy mess, Claiborne nevertheless recovered his mount and hauled himself back into the saddle. By that time, however, his brigade had split into two segments while maneuvering around the boggy ground. Two regiments passed to the right to attack Appler's 53rd Ohio, while the other four regiments swung to the left of the muddy obstacle to strike Hildebrand's other two regiments, as well as the left of Buckland's brigade, closer to Shiloh Church. That initial short-range volley by the 53rd Ohio toppled scores of men in Claiborne's two right regiments, and they soon fell back in what Claiborne admitted was, quote, a quick and bloody repulse, end quote. Claiborne and the regimental officers struggled to rally the men of the 23rd Tennessee and the 6th Mississippi, and soon the Mississippians and some of the Tennesseans advanced back to have another go at the Ohioans. William Tecumseh Sherman hadn't been dumped in the mud by his horse, but his morning, like Claiborne's, had gotten off to a bad start. In fact, it was the culmination of a very bad week in which Sherman had blundered spectacularly in flat-out ignoring or misinterpreting the meaning of the growing amount of enemy activity in front of the federal camps. 
Sherman's stubborn refusal to take the rebel activities seriously may have stemmed from the fact that in Kentucky the year before, he had erred by overestimating the enemy's strength and intentions. Determined not to repeat that error here in Tennessee, Sherman, as the camp commander, had chosen to believe that the Confederates nearby had no aggressive intentions, and he had clung to that belief despite mounting evidence to the contrary. As a result, he and Grant had just suffered one of the most complete strategic surprises of the Civil War. But the rebel volley that missed him in Ray Field, save for the buckshot through his hand, left Sherman with an opportunity to redeem himself, and to his credit, Sherman seized that opportunity. As the Confederate attack pressed harder and harder against Buckland's and Hildebrand's brigades, William Tecumseh Sherman rode from one end of his endangered line to the other, seeming to become more calm and clear-sighted the hotter the fighting raged. As he directed the battle in front of him, nothing seemed to faze him. Bullets whistled around him. One cut his bridle rein. Another glanced off his shoulder strap. His horse was shot from under him. He obtained another mount, but in less than twenty minutes, it too was shot dead. Sherman found a third horse and continued to ride along his hard-pressed line, making adjustments as necessary and inspiring his men. One of Hildebrand's men later said, quote, I remember how glad we were to see General Sherman, with a rag on his hand, riding along our lines. A member of Buckland's brigade recalled how Sherman, quote, The splendid soldier, erect in his saddle, looked a veritable war eagle. The men of Sherman's division would need all the inspiration they could get as the rebel pressure against their line continued to increase. The left four regiments of Claiborne's brigade charged toward Hildebrand's and Buckland's positions, and the Yankees opened fire when the range was just 30 yards. The storm of fire drove back the Confederates, but the Southerners rallied and came on again. At the same time, Claiborne succeeded in getting the 6th Mississippi and half of the 23rd Tennessee to renew their attack on the 53rd Ohio. The Yankees again repulsed the rebels, but just as the Confederates were starting to fall back once more, Appler finally lost his nerve and shouted, Retreat and save yourselves. Several hundred of Appler's men obeyed his orders and took off running for the rear, where they joined the fugitives from Prentice's division huddling along the base of the bluff beside the river back at Pittsburgh Landing. The rest of the 53rd's men, though, ignored their colonel's panicked command, especially on the regiment's right, where the stalwart Lieutenant Dawes and several other officers got the men there to stand fast. But with their numbers reduced and the regiment's left gone, the resolute remnant of the 53rd Ohio was soon forced to give ground and fall back a short distance. This in turn exposed the flank of the next regiment in line, the 57th Ohio, and that unit soon began to falter. Sherman's entire left was in danger of giving way. But before that, a brigade from McClernand's division arrived on the scene to prop up Sherman's flank and to restore some measure of stability to the Union line where Appler's loss of nerve had created a point of danger. The reinforcements from McClernand, a brigade of four regiments, were led by Colonel Julius Wright. And Wright's name is spelled R-A-I-T-H, but as we understand it, his name is pronounced Wright. At least that's our story, and we're sticking to it. Okay, so anyway, meanwhile, the Confederates were, of course, doggedly keeping up their attacks. 
Both wings of Claiborne's divided brigade continued to batter at Sherman's stubborn Federals, but now Claiborne's men were no longer alone in their assaults. As the battle raged on, Patton Anderson's brigade of Bragg's Corps joined them, as did Bushrod Johnson's and Robert Russell's brigades of Polk's Corps. And just as an interesting footnote, but some of you may remember that the last time we saw Bushrod Johnson was at Fort Donelson, where, although captured when the fort fell, he subsequently escaped by simply walking through the Union lines and out into the woods and away. Exactly. But besides the formations I already mentioned, Sterling Wood's brigade of Hardee's Corps engaged on its right with Prentice's crumbling line, pushed its left regiments into Ray Field, thereby stepping up the pressure on Sherman's left and Wright's recently arrived reinforcements. Several batteries of Confederate artillery also added their fire to the rebel assault. As Sherman's line, shored up by Wright's arrival, continued to hold steady, PGT Beauregard, who was still in the Confederate rear, directing units moving up into the fight, Beauregard began sending even additional formations toward this sector where the Yankee defense was proving especially stubborn. And so by about 9.30 that morning, half an hour after the collapse of Prentice's line to the east, Sherman and Wright were facing seven Confederate brigades. They were two of the three brigades of Hardee's first assault wave, two of Bragg's second wave brigades, and three of the four brigades of Polk's third wave. In all, the collection of Confederate units drawn into the fight against the Union position around Shiloh Church comprised more than half of the 13 total brigades in the first three attack waves of Sidney Johnston's army. And so already the effects of Jordan's clumsy attack formation were making themselves felt. Not only did the seven brigades belong to three different corps, but they were advancing on separate orders from Beauregard, Polk, Bragg, one of Bragg's division commanders, and some on the initiative of their own commanders who simply marched toward the sound of the heaviest fighting. The confusion within the Confederate Army caused by the arrangements prescribed in Jordan's faulty attack orders would continue to plague the rebels all day long, making concentrations of force difficult for Southern commanders to achieve. Nevertheless, when a sizable collection of Confederate brigades did happen to advance together in the same sector, even if not fully coordinated, their impact could be considerable. So, to boil it all down, in the present situation, Sherman's stubborn resistance had drawn down on his division more than half of the force in the first three Confederate attack waves, and by 10 o'clock, all that pressure was becoming too much. While a single rebel brigade advanced against Sherman's right, forcing Sherman's right brigade, commanded by John McDowell, to hold in place, the other six Confederate brigades pressed on Sherman's center and left brigades and Wright's lone brigade. Sherman's center, held by Buckland's brigade, faced only moderate Confederate superiority in numbers, perhaps 3,000 attackers against 2,200 defenders and so Buckland's three Ohio regiments held firm along their line just northwest of Shiloh Church. On the other side of the Corinth Road, though, just southeast of the church, Hildebrand's brigade was in trouble. It was the target of the heaviest rebel concentration, and it had been on shaky ground since early in the fight when Appler panicked and much of the 53rd Ohio legged it for the rear. 
And so now it was really no surprise that after more than two hours of intense fighting, Hildebrand's brigade began to give way. And despite the potential risk to Australian listener Andy C.'s imaginary cat, that's where we're going to leave the story this time. Sorry, Andy. Next time, we'll pick back up right here with the collapse of Hildebrand's brigade, and we'll continue to follow the action on the Union right, and Ulysses S. Grant will finally make an appearance, and then we may or may not get to the fight for the hornet's nest. But that'll all be next time. So for now, yes, sorry, Andy. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Shiloh, The Battle That Changed the Civil War by Larry J. Daniel. You know the blurbs they put on books sometimes uh, from other authors or lifted from newspaper reviews? Well, there are some of those on the back cover of Daniel's book, but they chose one to put on the front cover. And I won't say where it's from, but it's just a soundbite in three parts, and it says, A splendid analysis. In the tradition of killer angels, Shiloh is an excellent read. Well, I'll agree with two-thirds of that. It is a splendid analysis, and Daniel's book is an excellent read, but it is not in the tradition of killer angels. I mean, this is a pretty good narrative history of Shiloh, but it's not a novel. Anyway, for some reason that blurb just pushed my buttons, but that in no way detracts from us recommending Shiloh, The Battle That Changed the Civil War by Larry J. Daniel. And you can find it and a long list of all our other book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Twitter feed and to our Facebook page. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who pushed us over 1,000 likes on Facebook since the last episode. We were so excited about that. Yeah, and as near as we could tell, Mike T. was the official 1,000th person to like the podcast on Facebook. So here's a special shout out to Mike. Thanks, Mike. Now, if we could just have 1,000 members of the Strawfoot Brigade, uh, then Tracy and I could quit our day jobs and podcast full-time. <sighs> Maybe someday. And then Andy C. in Australia wouldn't have to kick his imaginary cat because we're such slackers. Uh, at any rate, we do have some new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank this time, and they are... Mark, Ed, David, and John. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's good to have you on board. And then last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next time when we continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.